All right, today we're going to take a look at a report from Motley Fool about how there's more bad news in the Canadian cannabis industry. Looks like some of the stocks not only are doing a little bit worse than they could have, but also some brands. So we're going to take a look at uh, a rise of budget bud in Canada, according to the Brightfield Group, just to kind of get an idea about perception as well as consumer preferences and discretionary income, how everything is changing uh, post-pandemic. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. So more bad news for the Canadian marijuana industry. Looks like despite U.S. federal government's failure to legalize cannabis, quite a few cannabis stocks have flourished. We've witnessed two-thirds of all states legalize cannabis and with 11 states permitting adult use consumption and or retail sales, according to the latest edition of the Marijuana Business Factbook. The U.S. sold anywhere from $10.6 billion to $13 billion in legal cannabis. Meanwhile, Canada has been a mess, simply can't get out of their own way. So many of its problems can be traced to regulatory issues. For example, the Health Canada can be blamed for both slowing down the licensing process for cultivators and retailers, as well as delaying the launch of high-margin derivatives, such as uh, edibles and infused topicals and vapes. And so thankfully, these issues haven't stopped licensed cannabis stores from creeping higher over the past few years. In July, cannabis licensee stores saw sales hit an all-time high of $231.6 million Canadian dollars, which is close to 50% from the monthly sales tallied in January 2020. So things are getting better for the Canadian industry and cannabis stocks, right? Well, not exactly. It's been some issues uh, from like they just mentioned, slow rollouts uh, to lack of sales. Obviously, we're seeing some issues with uh, post-pandemic discretionary spending changing. And so the rise of budget bud, we'll get into that in a moment as people are kind of changing the way that they are purchasing cannabis. And so is that going to be kind of uh, a, a precursor to the U.S.? I think we've already seen this in Washington, it's a it's the market maturing, and uh, you have premium, regular, and discount. Uh, and in Washington, uh, you can get a pre roll for two bucks. Uh, and guess who sells the most weed? The two dollar pre roll. Uh, yeah, you can charge. I <laughs> there was somebody charging fifty two dollars an eighth here in Washington for so-called premium cannabis. Who is going to buy that when an eighth goes for less than 20 bucks at, at a retailer? Um, and of course, ultimately you're competing with $2 pre-rolls. Now we won't talk about the quality of the $2 pre-roll, but the $2 pre-rolls are what sell compared to the $50 eight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've also kind of witnessed a few issues. Health Canada, they've made their mistakes, obviously, but there's some local provinces like Ontario, right? So they're home to almost 40% of Canada's population, but they ran a lottery system for their dispensaries. Didn't work out too well. They saw just 24 uh, stores open in the first year. Um, that they were supposed to have a thousand locations. But we're also seeing past earnings season, the Canadian licensed producers uh, are reporting exceptionally weak cannabis sales growth in the domestic market. And it made little sense considering that the pandemic coupled with an increase in new dispensary openings led to a notable uptick 
in licensing store sales, but we may now have the answer as to why these figures were so weak. We can look at this report from Brightfield Group about the cannabis newbies that examined the role of new users in the Canadian marketplace. And so maybe that's a part of it with a little bit of changes in the way that people are buying. So maybe not that $58 eight that you're talking about, because that's insane. Maybe they're looking at more what their budget can afford. Uh, and maybe it's just that they tried it and they didn't like it and they're not going to go back. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons behind that. But we can see that uh, in late 2019, the Canadian market began to roll out the new lines of cannabis 2.0 products. Again, that's edibles and beverages, concentrates with brands hoping to grow their customer base with that new options. Um, very popular things, chocolates and drinks, gummies and vapes. However, there's a bumpy rollout with um, the pandemic shutting some stores down before they were deemed essential. Um, flower remaining dominant, but it's kind of interesting looking at the consumer use uh, as they break it down into four categories being liberal elites. I think they used to call those the, the stoner category. And then there's microdosing mamas, the newbies, and then stressed out millennials. So between quarter one and quarter two, it looks like the percentage of consumers that reported using flower have all increased. Um, whereas I was reducing my flour because I didn't want to, to burn. I was a little bit worried about combusting um, early on in the, in the pandemic, whereas now everyone's kind of maybe taking what they stockpiled and just burning through it quite literally. Well, I think there's a variety of reasons for a shift in, in methods of consumption uh, that, that can be explained in a, in a, fairly logical ways. Um, so if you're a micro dosing mama, uh, we all know cannabis stinks. And if you, if you light it on fire, it stinks even worse. So if you're home with the kids, you don't want to smell like cannabis. Um, it, it's, it's difficult. Uh, you also have a lot of apartments uh, where smoking is prohibited. Uh, and also uh, you have that lifetime of uh, smoking is bad. Uh, so people should theoretically, especially a category such as uh, microdosing mamas, um, should have shifted to edibles with cannabis 2.0. That is what we would have expected. But with the pandemic, Josh, what you see is the edibles and the, the concentrates, uh, the gummies and things like that, uh, they're just too expensive. And if you're not working and you have to worry about diapers and baby food on top of your cannabis, uh, you have to make some choices. And flour is cheaper, uh, exponentially cheaper, Josh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to that point, um, it looks like in fourth quarter 2019, the licensed recreational cannabis was 20% more expensive than the illicit market. So that's probably part of the rise of the budget brands. Um, almost every major licensed producer, they've launched an affordable brand in Canada. Um, so looks like when Canada, Canada's federally legalized cannabis LPs got the green light to grow, they planted seeds grow too much. Um, we saw them kind of pull back even in Latin America, which never made sense to me where they were pulling back on their production. Um, they've written off Aurora wrote off 3 billion canopies written off a billion at least once, if not multiple times. 
So looking at the future of pricing, um, they were published last week. We could see that the new emphasis on low price cannabis playing an important role. Um, so despite increased sales volume, there's a greater portion of lower price, less costly bulk sales during that quarter. Uh, and Tweed, uh, Canopy Growth, accounted for a whopping 40% of flower sales in the quarter. Uh, people, people are looking at uh, less inexpensive uh, products. And Canadian consumers are becoming accustomed to lower price cannabis products. And that's going to impact top and bottom lines more than uh, pre-COVID or pre-pandemic uh, and anticipation. And I would say that I'm, I'm on that uh, board too, because I'm now more used to paying $500 a pound. If I have to pay more than 30 bucks an ounce, I'm going to feel like that's expensive. And so I'm going to either need delivery or I'm going to need, you know, something to entice me to go to a store and pay more than what I'm used to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the price point needs to be appropriate. And we see this in the tobacco industry. You see this in the alcohol industry. Uh, and we won't talk about the complaints about the pharmaceutical industry in the United States. Um, but quite frankly, you can have $2 bottles of wine. You can have $2 million bottles of wine. But most often, the $10 to $15 bottle of wine is what sells because people don't want to be cheap and only spend two dollars but people don't certainly want to spend two hundred dollars either so you have to find that sweet spot of the price point and canada just hasn't found it yet no a lot of them were expecting that 2.0 to drive margins higher but despite that rollout of cannabis 2.0, the derivatives products were launched in December this uh, this last year, slowly made their way to the retail stores, but new users preferred flour over derivatives. Um, so whereas derivatives use was more or less flat from the sequential first quarter, dried flour use rates among newbies spiked to 43% in the same quarter. So that's a good question, like why? For one, you can see that dried flour is more readily available than those derivative products, which have been constrained by supply challenges. And more importantly, is that the so-called newbies have been drawn to dried flour and pre-rolls due to value pricing on those products. So traditionally, people are looking at convenience and pricing, assuming there are trusted brands, which I don't think that there are yet. They're kind of developing but there's a whole lot of issues um, in terms of what the what you know the producers or LPs were expecting, and then what the reality is. I agree with that, and also you have questions about the import export involving Canada as well, Josh. Uh, um, the the export market was huge for for the big five: uh, Aurora, Tilray, Canopy, Kronos. Uh, and as the foreign markets mature, the need for export or import, depending upon what side of the ocean you're on, um, is also reduced. So now you have a little bit of oversupply that was unexpected, and you're down to a $2 pre-roll just like everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all of these companies are basically 
cannibalizing themselves, trying to compete against the illicit market. When we were up there for the International Cannabis Business Conference and Lyft in September and January, respectively, um, we saw these, these um, what do you call them? I, I guess uh, activists <laughs> out there with tables selling everything from pre-rolls to vape cartridges. And so when these producers, or when these LPs up in Canada are trying to drive uh, these margins with low priced items, it's kind of an oxymoron. So the illicit market is resilient, right? And so there's supply issues at the regulated market. And so trying to have an exceptionally low margin value price and high commoditized uh, flower competing against the illicit market and drawing in new users is expensive, which is probably why they had to write off $3 billion just gone. So Canada cultivators, they're crushing their own margins in an effort to beat back the illicit market and secure new customers. And that's why margins have been so awful as of lately and why revenue figures have been so poor despite licensed cannabis store sales hitting all times highs, which you can see that it's absolutely reflected into the stock market, um, which has been really volatile after the election or after the vice president's uh, debate when Kamala Harris said that they were going to legalize cannabis and expunge records, you saw massive spikes in double digits, 10% plus daily growth. It's crazy. Well, they dipped back down the same day. So it was an awesome trading opportunity that we got to take advantage of with our artificial intelligence based algorithm with uh, technical analysis and predictive analytics that is crushing the competition. But that's literally another podcast. Uh, regardless of that, we're seeing some crazy opportunities for swing trading um, as some of these companies are uh, moving up and down really quick, kind of hoping that there might be federal legalization. Well, Josh, I really just think that this is the market maturing. Uh, not only the Canadian stock market element of, hey, the green rush, everybody runs in and ridiculous valuations and billion dollar investments. Uh, now, it, every market is going to mature, but also in the retail market where, you know, the consumers are going to try it. I like this. I don't like this. I've never tried this. So let's go in this direction. Uh, and you're just seeing the market mature, both the stock market and the retail market. But most importantly, the illicit market, the black market never really goes away. Uh, Washington, we've been legal for what, five, seven years now, and we still have an illicit market. Yeah, I think eventually, you know, when you compare somebody selling bathtub gin or cigarettes out of their trunk eventually that's not going to happen. Um, it's going to take a lot for the complete normalization because there are knockoffs and um, products, even uh, screws, bolts, and nuts you see coming out of you know places like China that aren't um, completely legitimate. So when you try to screw on a nut and it cracks off because it's not made from the proper materials, um, even vape cartridges are at risk of things like that. So I think regardless, um, there is some normalization, but there is some opportunities for counterfeit products to make it into the marketplace, regardless of what it is. And from a pricing standpoint, it's going to normalize through carnage, capitulation, consolidation, whatever you want to call it, as um, the analogy I'll make with, with Starbucks taking out the mom and pop's uh, 
coffee places, the coffee chains by um, being able to use publicly traded money to reduce the amount uh, that they charge temporarily. So instead of charging $7 for a mocha, they charge three bucks, they drive mama pops out of business, and then they come back with their $8 latte. I think that's what we're going to see, but it's going to take that carnage in order to develop the microbrew equivalent to where we actually produce something that, you know, uh, consumers like you and I that have more of a sophisticated palate, a discerning flavor that we're looking for, for that true craft grower to come out uh, like the Phoenix from the ashes is going to take a serious amount of carnage that maybe the industry is not ready for. And certainly not the altruistic individuals that have stayed in the game way too long. I predict carnage is coming. <laughs> yeah. We have seen, we've seen the carnage in the Canadian market. Um, and there's just, and we've talked about this before, Josh, there's no reason that the state of Washington should have licensed 1200 growers in the state of Washington. There's only four, four and a half million people in Washington. Why do you need 1200 growers? There's only 300, uh, actually, uh, 394 is what I saw last count, uh, retailers. So that's, that's like three to four growers for each retailer. It's just, it's too much. And then, of course, in Oregon, with no canopy restrictions, uh, we all know what happened in Oregon. Uh, and so you have, to, you have to compete either with a quality product and there are people that will always pay for quality, or you have to get your cost of goods sold down low enough that you can sell a $2 pre-roll. And, and those are your only choices. And if you can't compete with quality and you can't compete on price, your clock is ticking. And I don't care where you are, Canada, Washington, California, Oklahoma, it doesn't matter. If you can't compete on those two things, then you're, you're, you're done. Yeah. Oklahoma is going to have a tough time with 7,500 licenses competing against Oregon with, you know, billion joints equivalent in excess. So that's only 3,500 licenses in Oregon. Oklahoma has got twice as much. I feel bad for those people who think that they're going to make a living um, this late in the game. It's going to be a, a tough uh, battle for them. But I guess um, it doesn't really matter whether we're talking about the most popular pot stocks or the largest cannabis stock by market cap. The story's the same. Do yourself a favor and avoid putting your hard-earned money to work in Canada licensed producers for the time being. That's according to the Motley Fool. <laughs> but we'll do a recap on what the stock market's looking like and the overall economy. You're just going to come back to the talking hedge and find out. I want to thank my guest, Katrina Glugowski, angel investor and attorney. Thanks for being back on the podcast. Thanks, Josh. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. 
Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.